0: Now, well, today, and I'd like, if you would, for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, the ninth chapter. Matthew, chapter 9, where I'll read for us verses 9 to 13 as our text. <clears throat> Matthew, chapter 9, we begin at the ninth verse. Hear now God's Word. And as Jesus passed by from thence, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the place of Toll, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why, eateth your teacher? with the publicans and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, They that are healthy have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And thus far the reading of God's Word. Doctors are a very esteemed lot of people. I'm talking here about medical doctors now, and I suppose there's a little tinge of jealousy and resentment as I point that out to you. Um, I have enjoyed the benefits of being called doctor because of my Ph.D., but I realize that most of the social amenities that come to me for that reason come because most people confuse that with being a medical doctor. I call a restaurant. I want to make reservations for my wife and myself. Reservations for two, eight o'clock, Friday evening, please. Oh, and who may I say is making these reservations? Dr. Bonson. You get nicer treatment if you're a doctor. If I were to say, Ph.D. Bonson, I'm not sure they would care too much. I remember the uh, day that I finally finished all my work at USC, and I had the right then to be called a doctor. Everything was in. Uh, graduate school had recognized my degree. I uh, called home. My family was in another state at the time and I had to reverse the charges and so when the operator asked uh, you know who she should say was calling I said tell her it's Dr. Bonson and uh, I thought my wife would get a kick out of that. Well the um, operator got quite a kick out of it. She said, oh, what kind of doctor are you? And the very first time I can use this this title, here's someone probing. And, I, and she said, are you a dentist? Are you a cardiologist? And I said, no, I'm a PhD. A what? I'm a doctor of philosophy. Oh. And then she puts through <laughs> she puts through the call. Medical doctors are held in high regard. And I'm not going to get into whether they should be held in higher or lower regard than doctors of philosophy. The fact of the matter is this morning as we begin that medical doctors are highly regarded. I highly regard medical doctors despite my jealousy. Uh, My life has been greatly changed by medical doctors. The use of my right hand is due only to the expertise of medical doctors. When I was a small boy it was crushed by a water heater and saved in its usefulness, especially for a a righty like me, uh, by medical doctors. Medical doctors saved my life when I went into anaphylactic shock uh, at the time that a uh, catheterization turned out to be life-threatening. I've had open-heart surgery, and I remember very well going into that surgery and right before the anesthesiologist putting, put me under my saying to the doctor, well, it's all in your hands now. You really do have to um, regard the ability of these doctors who can uh, change heart valves and uh, even replace whole hearts now, do all sorts of amazing things to save the lives and the usefulness of people. I have a high regard for medical doctors. Our culture does too. Our culture does, I suppose, not only because doctors make so much money, they make a great deal of money, and I for one defend them in that, I think they deserve most every bit of what they get. Uh, I think their expertise calls for that. Nevertheless, they make money and people look up to them for that reason. They are socially uh, highly regarded because of their wealth and status within the society. They're highly regarded for their abilities. And above all, I want to point out that our society looks at medical doctors and highly regards them because they're so necessary. So necessary for modern life to go on in the way that it does. Think of how many television programs we'd be missing if it weren't for medical doctors. I mean, we go through seasons where the emphasis is upon medical doctors our hospital programs, so forth and so on. Doctors are important people, and they should be regarded. Now, when you go to a doctor and he gives you a diagnosis, in light of the fact that the doctor is supposed to know more than you do, it makes sense to listen to what the doctor has to say. You see, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, now, Dr. Bonson, your blood pressure is so high and um, your heart valves are not working well or uh, whatever, and I say, well, that isn't what I wanted to hear, thanks. I think I'm going to pay to go get somebody to say the things I want to hear. I'm not going to do myself any favors at all. I need to learn to listen to the doctor's diagnosis, and sometimes it's very, very bad. Before I had an artificial heart valve put in, The doctor told me that I had a blood pressure of something like 180 over zero. I said, doesn't that mean I'm dead? He said, no, but almost. (laughs) The uh, lower number, it turns out, was due to the leak in my heart valve. I had no pressure at all when the heart was standing still. It was just Zippo. And I didn't want to hear that. It was so bad that he said, we're going to have to replace that aorta valve. Now, if I would have said, well... If I just whistle a happy tune, everything's going to be fine, right? I mean, I know that things can look bad, but we just have to change our attitude toward this doctor. I mean, you must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. You're in a bad mood. You know, we just need to be a little more chipper about all this. Everything's fine. I'm feeling good. Although, if I went up a flight of steps, it took me virtually ten minutes to catch my breath, I could still you know, say, oh, well, everybody has trouble going up a flight of steps, Right? No, it would be downright foolishness and detrimental to my health to have not listened to the doctors when they said, no, your heart's in very bad condition, and it's time to have something done. Oh, take an aspirin and call you in the morning, right, doctor? No, no, open heart surgery. No, 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 not open heart surgery. You mean take some medicine, maybe, more than an aspirin. Come see you every once in a while. Get a little more active. There's got to be something a little less radical than actually opening up the chest and doing things to the heart. No, that's the only way we can save you. At the time that um, this all took place, by the way, not to dwell morbidly on my own life and in uh, bad health, uh, it turned out that bacterial endocarditis uh, afflicted my heart, an infection within the heart. And I was having all the symptoms of it and called my surgeon and told him about this, and he said I needed to come to the hospital immediately, All that was about a month before the scheduled uh, uh, valve replacement. And I said, well, I can't do that, doctor. I've got a month's worth of speaking engagements and things. I can't come. It's just inconvenient. He said, well, you can come if you don't want to die. You can make the choice. And when I got to the hospital, I had a number of people lecture me and fill me in on the, on the threat of bacterial endocarditis. They said up until about 1948, everybody uniformly died from bacterial endocarditis. There was nothing they could do about it before penicillin. And uh, even now, some people wait so long that the endocarditis can't, can't be uh, reversed. And so it turned out to be a very life-threatening situation. But here, I, was, I had my mind so filled with other things that I couldn't take seriously what the doctor was telling me. Or maybe I didn't understand how serious the condition was. Obviously, we need to listen to our doctors, and we need sometimes to be willing to go through radical surgery, the time calls. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that from a spiritual standpoint, the same is true. That there's a doctor's diagnosis we need to hear, and some radical surgery that we need, and we're just fooling ourselves and toying with death, spiritual death, if we don't listen to what the doctor has to say. Our text this morning in Matthew, the ninth chapter, portrays Jesus in the role of a doctor, a physician of sorts. Actually, the story begins with the calling of Matthew, who turns out to be the writer of this gospel. And I really... um, enjoy, as you know, the historical background, comparison of various things in the Bible to see what we learn about the writers and about the situation um, in which they wrote. And when you read this account of Matthew's calling and compare it to what Mark and what Luke say about it, it becomes very evident that Matthew himself wrote this. In the first place, we um, have Matthew called by his Christian name, very likely his conversion name of Matthew, whereas the other two call him Levi, And um, as Matthew is called by Jesus to follow him, and he does, Luke says that Levi then put on a huge feast in celebration of the fact that he'd become a Christian, he was following Jesus, he puts on this feast for all of his friends. But now in Matthew's account of this, he doesn't say that. We have the one verse indication that he follows Jesus, and it came to pass as he sat at meat in the house. What house? Well, in the Greek, to say that we had dinner at the house is pretty much idiomatic for we ate at home. What you have here is Matthew saying, and as he was eating at home, who's home? Matthew's home. He suppresses the indication that Luke gives us, a very clear one, and yet it comes through indirectly that Matthew's talking about his own particular situation. What is surprising about Matthew being called? What's surprising is that Matthew is a social outcast. Matthew has very good press in Western history because he wrote a gospel. We think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were great men, holy men. They were apostles. They wrote part of the Bible. They wrote about Jesus. They were with Jesus. We tend to think of them then in this elevated way, but the people that knew Matthew didn't think of him in an elevated way, just the opposite. They thought of him in a very, very demeaning way. Because you see, Matthew was a publican. Matthew, as he was called by Jesus, was in the midst of doing some degrading work. The degrading work of collecting taxes at a toll booth. As fishermen would come to the lake, they would have to pay their taxes. And who do they pay taxes to? To the Romans to the oppressors who had taken over the Jewish people and controlled Palestine at the time. Matthew was a Jew, but he was collaborating with the Romans. And not only was he collaborating with the Romans, not only was he taking taxes, which nobody likes in the first place, but he was making his own money by robbing from his Jewish friends and neighbors. For you see, the way the Romans arranged for taxes to be collected is that they would give the right to collect taxes to somebody, and then they said, and you make your money by whatever you can charge over and above our demand. And so Matthew made his money, his income came through extortion. He had been given legal police leverage over people, and then he made them pay him whatever he thought he had coming. And remember, Rome didn't adjust the prices of the taxes. Rome said, this is how much we want you to collect, you send it to us. And anything over in that was profit, was gravy for Matthew himself. And so Matthew was hated by his fellow countrymen. He was one of the lowlives of that society. In fact, he's associated in the terminology with sinners, the Jewish term for those who were socially disreputable, prostitutes people who were thieves, those who were unclean, butchers, people who made their money by defiling themselves in one way or another. And so you have this expression, the publicans and sinners, tax gatherers and all these uh, ceremonial and religious lowlives of Jewish society. And you know, there's something about Jesus that we all need to be aware of. Jesus had a reputation for befriending those kind of people. Jesus not only had that reputation, he was aware that he had that reputation. If you turn to Matthew eleven nineteen, listen to what Jesus says. He has just answered a question about John. He says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a demon. And now verse 19, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. See, Jesus takes the um, the kind of disdain that is on the lips of other people against him, and he uses that of himself. He says, that's right, I am a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus was not prim and proper. Jesus did not keep all the Jewish traditions about avoiding defilement by touching people like this. Matthew wasn't either. Matthew was the sort of man who handled money. And in that day and age, it isn't just money because it was money that was evil. It was what was on the money. Idolatrous icons often on the money are statements about the emperor that were idolatrous. And the Jews felt it was defiling to touch it. And Matthew made his money by touching this money and exchanging this money and extorting from others. And it turns out Jesus befriends Matthew. Now, we can read a lot between the lines. I'm not going to do this this morning, but just think for yourself what this means. So briefly, Jesus passes by Matthew's toll booth, and he says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew puts down all of his books, all of his ledgers, lays aside the money, gets up, and he follows the Son of God. Well, we do note Matthew rejoiced at his change of life and his change of heart. He so rejoiced that he put on a big feast. He put on a dinner for his friends. His friends, by the way, Society of Low Lives, publicans and sinners. The only people who come to Matthew's house are fellow collaborators with Rome and people who were ceremonially unclean, the prostitutes and the others in society that the scribes and Pharisees detested with all their hearts. But nevertheless, as Jesus reclined at dinner by the way at a formal meal they they down they would recline on one elbow it's just the opposite we think of a very informal picnic going out and reclining and eating but that was a very formal time for the jews and so matthew puts on a formal dinner jesus comes and he reclines at dinner in the house and a lot of publicans and sinners come and sit down with jesus and his disciples jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners that bad reputation that he got by associating with outcasts was not something to keep him from the work he had come to do. But, you know, when Jesus was found sitting down to eat with these lowly sorts of people, the religious leaders criticized him, the Pharisees. Interestingly, they don't criticize him to his face. No, they take his disciples aside and saying, why are you following a man like this? You understand? He touches prostitutes. He eats with tax gatherers. How could you possibly respect somebody like this? They won't say it to his face, but the word comes back to Jesus eventually. He does hear about it. Verse 12 says, But when he heard it, he responded. He answered. And Jesus answers basically by pointing to a truth of the Old Testament, a truth that the religiously superior people of his day had apparently missed, Hosea the prophet had proclaimed that what finds favor in God is mercy, not religious rituals like sacrifice. Hosea had said, God respects mercy and not so much sacrifice and going through all these rituals. Isaiah the prophet, Jesus doesn't say this here, but you may remember that Isaiah the prophet actually said, God hates your religious feast. And He despises and rejects your sacrifices because they don't come with a heart full of mercy and faith toward Him. The Jews, you see, had missed the point of their Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus just replies in terms of the basics. It's one of the ABCs of the faith. He says, God regards mercy. And so He says, go and learn this. By the way, that was a common rabbinic formula when a, a student was to go and learn his lessons. Go and learn what it means. And so Jesus teaches his enemies. He becomes their rabbi. He says, go and learn what Hosea meant when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, by associating with sinners, Jesus graciously showed them his favor and his care. He acted mercifully toward them. They hadn't lived up to his standards. They hadn't lived up to his own behavior. They hadn't earned his friendship. They hadn't earned his concern. And yet, in mercy, he befriends them. Now, in the process of saying this, to get back on track about doctors, Jesus likens himself to a physician. He likens himself to a physician so that he might explain that he didn't come to call the righteous, but rather to call sinners to repentance. Now, that comparison of Jesus to a physician is not at all a poor comparison. It's really quite apt. For if you read on in Matthew, the ninth chapter, we see that Jesus restores sight to the blind, verses 27 to 31. And he restores speech to the dumb in verses 32 to 34. He restores health to a woman that had a lifelong hemorrhage in verses 20 to 22. And indeed, he restores life to someone who was dead in verses 18 to 26. When Matthew summarizes the activity of Jesus in this regard at verse 35, he says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of disease and all manner of sickness. There's never been a physician like this. Jesus, who gives sight, who gives hearing, Who gives healing? Who gives life to the dead? What a physician! And Matthew thinks of Jesus. Matthew thinks of Jesus' healing ability as closely associated with his ability to forgive sin. In this very same chapter, verses 5 and 6, right before the calling of Matthew, we read these words Jesus speaking to his opponents. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk to a man who was. Um, lame. And then verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick and palsy, arise and take up your bed and go unto your house. Jesus says, you have difficulty with me forgiving sins? Well, how about if I heal this man? And what do you think is more difficult? Jesus does both. He says, take up your bed and walk and your sins are forgiven. And so we have the one who not only heals the body, but the one who is able to heal the soul as well. The one who is able to give life to those who are spiritually dead, as well as life to those who are physically dead. And Matthew associates these two. And now when Jesus gets ready to answer his self-righteous critics, he points out very astutely something which is probably Um, a parable of that day, a slogan, something that people would identify with. He says, those who are healthy have no need of a physician, but rather those who are sick. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor, only those who are sick. And so now Jesus, the healer of men's bodies, becomes the healer of men's souls. He speaks as the great physician, the one who knows man's inner condition, And Jesus recognizes people will not come to him for that spiritual healing. They will not come to him for spiritual life until they first see themselves as sick, indeed dead, and in need of help. And that's why he ministers not to the people who think so highly of themselves as religiously superior, not to those who are self-righteous, But Jesus rather ministers to publicans and sinners, those who have no pretense of spiritual wholeness, those who have no pretense of spiritual health. The great physician extends the offer of healing to those who see their desperate need, not to those who already consider themselves worthy enough of God's delight in their service. Does Jesus suggest here that the Pharisees and the scribes don't need him? No, what Jesus says is they don't recognize their need. And since they think that they are well, they think they are healthy, they think they are whole, they see no need of a physician. And so I can't minister to these people. They won't receive the ministry. The ministry has no effect in their lives. But to those who are down and out, to those who are the outcasts of society, they understand Jesus, and they love him because he offers to them the healing They recognize, and they acknowledge, they admit they need. So Jesus is the doctor, and he gives a diagnosis for man, a diagnosis that not everyone will hear. You see, there are some people who think they're above the doctor's diagnosis. There are people who, when they hear the doctor say, you know, you're almost dead, if not actually dead, say, oh, no, it couldn't be that way. Not me. I'm doing fine. Yeah, I get a little depressed. I feel a little guilty. I don't get along with people. I know I'm a little selfish sometimes, but I'm okay. You know, it's, it's just a little infection. It's a cold, doctor. And the doctor says, no, it's cancer. And it's about ready to consume you. You need radical surgery. What is the doctor's diagnosis of you today? When Jesus looks at your heart, he looks inside you, when his X-ray vision analyzes where you are in terms of your spiritual health, what does he see? If you turn to Isaiah, the first chapter, Isaiah has a nice description of what God sees in people like you and me. When God takes account of our spiritual health, he says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Isaiah 1, verses 5 and 6 From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and fresh stripes. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with oil. When God looks at us in our spiritual condition, you know what he sees? He sees people who are sick through and through. From the sole of our feet to the tip of our head, God sees nothing but open sores, running sores, blood that will not stop. He says, you're in terrible condition. You're going to die spiritually. And there's nothing that can be done for you apart from radical surgery. You need to be healed. The Bible tells us some very bad things. Kind of like a doctor that tells you you need open heart surgery or cancer removed from your body. The Bible is very blunt about it. The Bible says we're in bad shape. According to Jeremiah, our hearts are deceitful above all things and exceedingly corrupt, so much so that no one can even know how bad our hearts are. The Bible tells us that we are so weak that we can't even please God. The sinful mind, according to Paul, is hostile to God and doesn't submit to God's law And it can't do so. For those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. The Bible says that we have been disobedient to God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that those who have sinned against God are slaves of sin. They're addicted to sin. As Jesus said in John the 8th chapter, those who sin are the slaves of sin. The Bible tells us that we have a terrible, terrible chart, if you want to read it spiritually. The psalmist cried, O God, you know my foolishness, my sins are not hid from you. Indeed, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Isaiah puts it this way, all of us are become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are filthy rags in the eyes of God. Oh, it's much worse than that, actually. The Bible says not only are we sick unto death, we are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. 1 John chapter 5 says, He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's what the good doctor says. That's what the great physician has to say about our spiritual condition. And as you hear that this morning, I wonder if you're like the patient that sits in the doctor's chair hearing the results of all the tests, hearing the results of the doctor's analysis and saying, oh, no, you've got the wrong patient, doctor. This is not me. I can't be that sick, but you are. You know, the only people who don't think they're that sick are the ones who don't think they need a doctor at all. And I hope this morning, as you leave, you're not going to leave here thinking, boy, that pastor is talking about some pretty wicked people. I don't know anybody like that. I hope you don't leave thinking, I'm not that sick. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that means pastors and elders and deacons. It means religious leaders, evangelists who may stand up before thousands of people. People who might appear the most religious of all, they're sick. And they need the healing that Jesus offers. All of us are sick that way. All of us are inwardly unclean. All of us have diseased hearts. All of us are spiritually dead. Jesus knew two types of people. Those who said, you're right, doctor. Do what needs to be done to me. And those who said, oh, come on. We don't need that. We're doing quite all right. What kind of person are you this morning? Do you know that you live out of harmony with God? Do you know that you live by your own wisdom and your own direction? Do you know that your life is oriented on yourself, that if anything, you're your own little God? Do you recognize that? Do you see your lovelessness? Do you see your rebellion? Do you see your desire of doing things which are not good for you or for others? Do you recognize that your bad relationships with other people stem from that attitude in you and those that you don't get along with? Do you recognize that the things that happen to you in life that are so depressing come because we haven't handled life's challenges correctly? Do you know that you're sick? Do you know that you need some help? If you do, I want to plead with you this morning this one thing, and I hope you'll come back next week and hear more about this. But I want you this morning to just take me at my word. There are a lot of quacks out there. There are a lot of quacks. A lot of people who are offering spiritual help and spiritual healing that cannot help you. You see, there are people who like to take advantage of that terrible, self-destructive habit we have of wanting things to be better than it really than they really are. There are people who say, "Oh look, if you come to our group. And you, know, and you just think better of yourself and have positive thoughts. We'll all get along. Everything will be fine. There are people who say, God doesn't want you to be depressed and think you're a sinner. God wants you to think of yourself as naturally his child. We're all children of God. There are people who will tell you that for a small price you can get some psychological counseling. You can even forget about God. And some counselor, some psychologist can solve your problems for you. There are people, sociologists, who say if we could just have better living conditions in our society we'd all get along. We could solve our problems of poverty and of crime and all the rest and our inner problems can be resolved if we just learn how to relate better in society. There are a lot of quacks out there who don't know how sick you are, but Jesus does. And Jesus doesn't encourage you to whistle a happy tune and just think positive thoughts and it'll all go away. Jesus says, there's only one thing that's going to help you, and that is trusting yourself to me. Just like Dr. Bonson went into that open-heart surgery and put himself in the hands of the physician, he said, it's all yours. That's what we need to do. We need to say, Jesus, I can't do anything for myself. I put myself in your hands. I trust you. I have faith in you. I believe that you can heal me. I believe that you can give me life from the dead. Jesus tells us the day is coming when all men will stand before him as a judge. And on that day, that final day of judgment, there are going to be those who are going to find out that they are spiritually dead and will be sent out from his presence eternally. And then there are going to be people who realized a long time ago that they were spiritually dead and they came to Jesus and they were healed and were given spiritual life. And on that day, they'll enjoy the resurrection of life forever. Think about it this way a man goes into the doctor and the doctor says you need open heart surgery and the man says oh no I don't I'm quite all right the doctor can say well you'll either find out today or you'll find out later you are sick and you will die we all understand that I want you to understand that spiritually this morning as we conclude our exhortation what God says to you you are sick and you are dead and if you won't admit that today the day is coming when it will be very clear to you You will spiritually suffer eternally for your rebellious attitudes, for your self-centeredness and your lack of love, for the fact that you don't live by the golden rule and you don't obey my commandments. Two kinds of people in this world, those who listen to the doctor's diagnosis and those who think they know better. Which are you? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning... And we acknowledge that you are the great physician, the doctor of souls, the one who knows us inside and out. And the thing that amazes us is that you know us so well, and yet you're our friend. You're willing to befriend us. You're willing to show mercy and grace to us. You're willing to use your healing power to correct what ails us, to take away our spiritual infirmity, to get rid of all of that uncleanness and disease that is within us, to wash us clean and to give us new life. We come to you as our spiritual doctor and plead with you to do this. We put ourselves in your hands, knowing that we are no good to ourselves and cannot heal ourselves. We, above all, need you to heal us. Please do so as we trust you. For we pray in your precious name. Amen.